We're going to have a different session this morning. I've asked Mike Riccardi to uh, uh, go tag team with me on this. Uh, It's on a document that was executed, uh, was prepared in the fall of 2018. It's titled, The Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. Printed copies are available on the table. If you haven't picked up one when you come in, by all means, uh, pick up one. I'm going to ask for a promise to be made. Raise your hand if you're willing to do so. After this session, and you can start during it, of course, uh, promise me that you'll take the time to actually read through this document. With that, we've accomplished the major part of what we needed to do today, and that is get this scheduled and secondly, have the document distributed. Now, uh, we'll go forward with that. We will talk through it. Um, one of the reasons why we are doing it at this particular time, studying it, uh, is given to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, talking about the structure of the church. Paul writes, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are to no longer be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. We're wanting to take the time today with the goal of stabilizing our people, with the goal of moving towards greater maturity, and with the goal of moving towards greater unity within the body of Christ. Uh, This document, as I indicated, was completed and signed in October 2018, after six months of extensive discussion within the church here in America. Uh, It does, therefore, have a certain flavor, a certain context, Uh, within the United States of America. However, I would suggest and submit that it is internationally applicable as well, as it speaks not to just the American populace, uh, but to the uh, condition of mankind as a whole. Uh, A draft was submitted within the Board of Elders. Uh, We wrote out some uh, comments, uh, and then... 
on behalf of Dr. MacArthur, Mike Riccardi uh, participated to a great degree, along with, I believe, Phil Johnson, uh, in the making of the final version. I teach a class at Masters University titled Law and Public Policy. And it was as a result of that uh, this year, uh, because of that, I've always wanted to, to inject uh, scripture into that class. We are a Christian educational institution, and as a result of that, we want to be biblically based. Uh, I had my students go through portions of this on a regular basis this last semester, uh, and yes, it was uh, something that we were able to finish despite uh, the pandemic outbreak. Uh, but we went through it a bit at a time. And as I went through it, I was greatly impressed uh, by how well done it was. There are a few places that uh, I would uh, probably want to see a few changes made. Uh, that's going to be the case with every document. That is why we have a United States Supreme Court Uh, because no document will be able to anticipate all of the questions that will rise up under it. However, this is a document that gives us a great deal of basic understanding of these particular issues. When this document came out, it was quite controversial. Uh, There was a lot of uh, correspondence. If you Google it uh, uh, on your home computer, your cell phone, uh, or your iPad, uh, you'll find that there were a number of articles that came out at or about the time that it uh, was issued. Interestingly, most of them uh, went to the timing, went to what they thought was a somewhat objectionable matter of presentation. Uh, to some degree, they would be what we would refer to in the uh, uh, area of logic, in the area of the study of knowledge, as an argument ad hominem. I don't like something about one of the guys that I think uh, is responsible, therefore I don't like the document. Very few people had substantive objection to the actual content of what was stated. And it was due in part to that objection uh, that to some extent the document sat idle for the last year and a half. Uh, So far as I am aware uh, and Mike may know otherwise, I don't think that there was any uh, effort made to bring this to the attention of any of our people here at Grace Church uh, or within the church in America on a widespread basis. Consequently, when uh, the events of late May of this year happened, Uh, the events of late May and early June, uh, to some extent, we were not as well prepared uh, as we could be. To some extent, uh, the reaction, even within solid Bible-believing Christians, uh, was a reaction of moving reflexively from a reaction of not liking what we were seeing to some kind of a response, which may or may not be the most appropriate response. In our cultural level, we have seen people going from 
what appears to be, at least on the surface, a position of mindless extreme to other mindless extremes. Uh, Some of the actions that are currently being proposed, when you analyze them and carefully look at them, you have to say, does this really make any sense? Consequently, uh, we as believers need to be available as salt and light within our culture, within our community. Uh, So realizing that, um, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, the saying goes, I thought that it would be appropriate for us to take the time to actually go through this, to read through this, uh, and consider what it has to say with the goal, as I've said earlier, of providing stability, a certain level of stability to be able to withstand the winds of false doctrine, a certain drive for greater biblical-based unity within the multicolored body of Christ, using Peter's term, uh, the multicolored body of Christ that we are privileged to be a part of. Now, Uh, Having said that, let me just make clear that our primary focus today is going to be going through the document, making sure that we acquaint you, uh, acquaint ourselves with actually what it says. Uh, We will talk in terms of uh, what it means uh, to some degree. Primarily, however, we don't want to let our discussion get in the way of or interfere with your comprehension of what the document actually says. When I brought this up, what we were going to be doing to uh, uh, some of the people within my own immediate family, one of my uh, uh, family members said, look, if you're going to have the time, you might want to just preach on a particular piece of Scripture. Yes, I agree with the authority of Scripture, and that is precisely what we're doing here. This pulls together material abstracted and digested from Scripture, uh, and I would encourage you to be a Berean. In the book of Acts, we read the comment that the Bereans were no, more noble uh, than all the rest because they actually took the time to check the notes, make sure that this is, in fact, what the Scripture teaches. We're still coming on in, folks. Uh, there are copies of the document back there. Be sure to get one if you uh, don't already have it. Now, as an overview, this is, uh, I'm having a little bit of a problem right now. Uh, I went through cataract surgery in January and February, and as a result, I'm having to make sure that I actually can see what I'm talking about. Uh, the document has 14 specific sections, each stated very precisely, and as I've indicated, each is thoroughly backed by cited scripture. The document is structured so that each section will contain a paragraph of positive affirmation and a separate paragraph of negative denial, okay? And there's a couple of comments that we have to make about that. Christians are not always going to be known by what they affirm. 
God's people at times will be known, not necessarily for being positive, but by virtue of the fact that we say no to a culture that is moving in a direction away from the will of God. Okay, so don't just necessarily think that merely because we are being negative in part, it's because we're, that we're not being Christian. We have to know what we say yes to. We have to understand what we say no to. A good, a good example of that is uh, when you have a knock on the door from the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and you, know, you say, oh, no, it's okay, we're Christians. And they say, oh, well, we're Christians too. There's a, a, an, agree, an agreement upon what we can affirm. I believe in, in Jesus. I believe that he's the Savior. I believe in God. Um, you know, we're Christians. Where, where we have to uh, distinguish ourselves is in what we deny. And, and they would deny that Jesus, of course, is, is God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. Uh, we would deny that he is Michael the archangel and, and, and merely, and, you know, merely uh, basically merely a man you know, uh, on, on our side. So just an illustration of the need for both affirmation and denial. All right. Um, the structure is what we refer to as antithetical. Antithetical reasoning. Dr. MacArthur has commented that much of Scripture is taught to teach people to think antithetically. You have a positive thesis, you have a negative antithesis. Antithesis. Uh, that approach, in and of itself, is designed to create a certain level of balance. As I react to something that's going on in my culture, I know that it is wise, it is permissible to correct this problem. I also know that it is imprudent, it is unbiblical, it is ungodly to take it to a particular extreme. All right? So we want to make sure that you understand we will be looking at positive and negative for each of these particular topics. So the topics begin with Scripture. Then it will move to the creation of man being in the image of God. The next three sections address God's justice, God's law, and the curse of sin. With that backdrop, the statement then presents the gospel and salvation. At that point, the statement contrasts the church with heresy. What is heresy? Uh, moving to a discussion of both sexuality and marriage and the topic of complementarianism, the relationships between men and women within the body of Christ. Finally, the statement has three sections. The first addresses race and ethnicity, culture, And then finally, the last topic will be racism. Uh, the technology has just failed me for a minute, and you're moved slightly ahead of where I am. We will catch up briefly. But uh, the point being that I wanted to make is we will go through this. Uh, we will make sure that we've covered it. Uh, then at the end, time permitting, uh, we will take questions if there are any available. Uh, we are going to try to avoid commenting on certain current or contemporary uh, fact patterns. Uh, and we will 
be looking for a genuine question. Sometimes believers in Sundays in July are prone to make a statement and then say, wouldn't you agree with it? Or start off with, wouldn't you agree with, and then make their statement. So if you hear me ask, is there a question there somewhere? Uh, Understand that I'm telling you we need to move on. All right? Okay. Scripture. We affirm that the Bible is God's word breathed out by him. It is inerrant, infallible, and the final authority for determining what is true, what we must believe, and what is right, how we must live. All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, which is Scripture alone. In contrast, we deny that Christian belief, character, or conduct can be dictated by any other authority, and we deny that the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. We further deny that competency to teach on any biblical issue comes from any qualification for spiritual people other than clear understanding and simple communication of what is revealed in Scripture. Now, when all is finally said and done, in a sense, uh, the areas of our lives that are covered by this, uh, this conflict that we experience may ultimately be reduced to a conflict over the supremacy, the clarity, the authority Uh, of Scripture and Scripture alone. Uh, In contemporary China, there is an effort being made to uh, edit Scripture to accomplish the goal of a culture. The same thing happened in 1930s Germany, in the mid-30s in Germany, uh, where Hitler tried to do the same thing. And to some extent we as believers are wrestling with a culture in which during a portion of our history, during a portion of our country, uh, efforts were made uh, to pursue uh, an approach to Scripture that would justify conduct that in the aggregate cannot be excused within the life of Scripture. Uh, Our realization of that is only now beginning to take place. Ultimately, however, this is to affirm the authority of Scripture. Uh, We are called to think in partial reverse of the curse with the authority of Scripture as our final yardstick. Now, there is a statement there that says neither radical feminism nor intersectionality nor critical race theory uh, can control our understanding of Scripture. Now, Radical feminism, I don't think any of us have much of a problem with understanding that. Intersectionality basically says that if I am part of more than one discriminated or group that is, has been discriminated against, I may be able to speak more definitively to Scripture. Uh, the prototype would be the African-American female. Okay? Uh, we would deny that anyone... Uh, based on their uh, status, their cultural experience, may be 
able to define Scripture, articulate Scripture, understand Scripture uh, more clearly than the document itself would allow us all to do. Now, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Riccardi, uh, critical race theory. What's critical race theory, Mike? Sure, and I'll try to be quick here. I would recommend that you all get familiar with that term if you haven't been familiar with it. Um, An excellent uh, presentation on that topic uh, comes from a man named Dr. Neil Shenvi, S-H-E-N-V-I, and you can find his presentation on on YouTube if you just pop his name in and do Shenvi critical theory. It'll come up. Um, But the basic basic gist of critical theory is that... uh, People don't have individual identity, or if they do, it, it really exists only as a function of their group identity. So, you know, you're a moral agent, not as an individual, but as a member of a group, uh, whether that group is defined by gender, male or female, whether it's defined by uh, ethnicity, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whether it's defined by uh, socioeconomic status, rich, poor, um, whether it's defined by uh, so, sexual uh, preference and orientation, straight, uh, homosexual, uh, cisgender, transgender, and things like that. And the idea is that in each of these groups, there is an oppressor class and an oppressed class, a majority class and a minority class. And those who are in the majority class, by definition, uh, are the oppressors of the minority class. Because what, they're, what they define oppression as is a term called hegemonic power, H-E-G-E-M-O-N-I-C. And hegemonic power just means that uh, it's the ability to impose one's values upon another. Now, for, for much of history, right, uh, there were the, the values were imposed upon society by men rather than women. Uh, in the last several hundred years, uh, values are imposed on society, uh, you know, by... Uh, white men. Uh, Certainly, uh, values are imposed upon society by heterosexual white men, and so on. And you can go down the the, the classes of categories. And so, oppression is not uh, cruelly, uh, you know, treating someone wrongly. Uh, It's not this that's been redefined um, as simply having, belonging to a class which has the ability to impose values uh, upon another class. And so if you have never uh, mistreated a woman in your life, men, you are nevertheless an oppressor of women simply by being male. If you've never had any sort of partial thought or emotion in your heart rise up against a member of another ethnicity simply because of, the, of their skin color differing from yours, if you are in a, in a majority class, you are a racist. It's just, it's just what it is, because white people, for example, have oppressed black people and other minorities and, uh, throughout history, and uh, you belong to that class, and your identity is inseparable from that class. And so the idea is you, you don't belong, you're not your own, you belong to a group. The, the, the morality of that group agency is determined by hegemonic power, that is the ability to impose values. And three, the fundamental duty that we all have is to eliminate oppression, okay? So this means that uh, what we have to do is we have to enfranchise the marginalized. We have to rally around the, the, uh, 
the case of uh, the oppressed classes, and we have to basically, we have to subjugate the oppressor classes uh, in order to make things equal, in order to make things uniform. You've enjoyed a lot of benefits by virtue of your uh, oppressor class uh, identity for a long time. Now it's not your turn anymore. Now we have to not stop oppressing people. We just have to start oppressing the oppressors so that we can uh, exalt those who have been oppressed. It's not enough to end discrimination because you can't just say, oh, you've discriminated against this group of people for X hundred number of years, and now, okay, never mind, we're done with that. Okay, we're all friends now. No, no, no. You have, you have to now make things equal. And, of course, they leverage the, the, the attractive language of equality by basically saying, well, we have to be unequal until the scales are, are balanced again. It's the difference between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. And so now, um, <clears throat> there was a great example of this. So if, if, um, if white people are oppressors, by virtue of our, our class, right? If I've never done anything to oppress anybody, but I'm an oppressor simply because I'm a white man, then it's okay for, uh, this is what happened, one of the, so there was a, a Trump supporter, a guy in a MAGA hat, right, who was out in a protest, and there was a member of Antifa, which is the, uh, the anti-fascist is the name that they've assumed to themselves, and this, this particular member of Antifa uh, was uh, an ethics professor, a university ethics professor, and uh, the way, because he saw this Trump supporter, because in his mind, uh, Trump is obviously himself an old white man, um, but is also a figurehead for this idea of, of the advancement of oppressor classes. This ethics professor thought it was okay to hit the man in the head with a bike lock. So an ethics professor somehow gets it okay with his ethics to physically harm another man who's done nothing but, you know, have to take a political, political opinion. Why? Because that man represented the oppressors. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental duty of mankind is to stand with the oppressed and overthrow the oppressors. That's critical theory. It, it, it's, it's gone by a more recognizable name uh, of cultural Marxism. And when you apply critical theory to... Uh, racial interactions, you get critical race theory. There's also critical law theory. There's also critical um, uh, education theory and things like that. So basically, okay. that's it's too long. Justice but. becomes a matter of competing power blocks. Yep. Discrimination, oppression of one block by another. The point that is made here at the outset is that our scriptural exegesis, our understanding of scripture is not to be distorted by that mental perspective. In contrast, we are wanting to preserve authorial intent. What did God mean? What were the prophets actually saying? Uh, What did the Old Testament mean when it addressed this particular topic? Uh, We want to preserve the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture, and the grammatical, historical approach to the exegesis of Scripture. We also want to preserve the fact that man is who the Scripture says he is, that justice is as the Scripture defines. We want to begin with the perspective of God 
and continue to hold to God's perspective as our driving, overriding uh, filter in which we view what's going on in our culture. Second slide, or the second section in the particular document uh, is titled Imago Dei. Now, I am not a Latin student. My pronunciation will probably demonstrate that very quickly. We affirm that God created every person equally in his own image. Because of that, as divine image bearers, all people have inestimable value. Get that word, inestimable value, a value we don't understand. All people have that. They have a dignity before God. They deserve honor, respect, and protection. Everyone has been created by God and for God. All lives matter. Okay? The particular ethnic status, and I prefer to use the term ethnic or ethnicity as opposed to race, uh, all lives matter. Even the lives of the unborn. The value of human life does not come from a nation. It does not come from a culture. It does not come from some conflict between competing power blocks. The value of human life comes from God. We have value in life because of God for our glory to give to God and for our enjoyment of God, the chief end of man, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That precisely is ultimately the source of our value as people. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. This is a God-centered approach to value. We will move momentarily to a discussion of a God-centered approach to justice. We deny that God-given roles, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, sex or physical condition, or any other property of a person either negates or contributes to that individual's worth as an image bearer of Almighty God. Okay? mere fact that I have maybe uh, a certain uh, skin coloration doesn't detract from my value. You can call me a redneck if you want, and it would probably fit, but uh, it does not detract from any value that I may have in the sight of God, nor does it add to any value that I have in the sight of God. Partiality of any sort in government administration. Ultimately, the term partiality, you look in the Hebrew, you look in the Greek, it goes back to the idea of government administration, of justice being based on facial appearances. We've all seen the uh, statue of justice wearing the blindfold. Okay, Justice is not based on the superficial. We dig deeper than that. Why? 
because we are dealing with, we are resolving conflicts within people who have value because they have been created in the image of God. Partiality of any sort in government or judicial administration is ultimately wrong because it violates this fundamental principle of humans having a value because they have been created in the image of God. The image of God, by the way, don't ever let this uh, leave your thinking or depart from your thinking. Uh, The image of God as corrupted in Genesis chapter 3 by the event known to history as the fall uh, is probably one of the greatest keys to understanding some of the incredible contrasts that we have seen in our lifetime, in our recent history. This will explain why a culture uh, can create tremendous works of engineering, tremendous works of art, and yet at the same time uh, take actions of systematic, systemic genocide, as we saw in the mid-1930s and 1940s. It's precisely because of that that we can make sense out of this, that we can understand our people, the people that we live in. This would be a topic, and we could talk more about this at another time, biblical anthropology. We need to go to the Scripture to learn theology, and we all understand that. Uh, That's a given. And yet, at the same time, we tend to lose sight of the fact that we go to the Scripture to understand the people within the world in which we live. Justice. This is where we've been uh, waiting to get justice. And again, this is a God-centered perspective on justice. This is justice as God defines it. Justice will always be based not on the conflict between competing blocks, power blocks of groups that may be set apart by skin coloration, by cultural background, whatever it is, Biblical justice is always based on specific individual conduct. It is always based on specific defined passages of law. It is always going to be based not on attempting to resolve some relative power block conflict. It's being based on resolving a particular area of misconduct. We affirm that since God is holy, righteous, and just, again, justice will grow out of God's holiness. It grows out of his righteousness. God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. Incredibly significant idea. There is and should be a passion for justice Uh, instilled within us. And to some degree, that will exist in all men. Even where it has been seared, even where it has been distorted by the fall, Calvin indicates that uh, the law of God written on the mind and heart of man was reduced to a shapeless ruin as a result of the fall. This justice includes showing appropriate respect to every person and giving to each one what he or she is due. We affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. 
One of the great Scottish uh, theologians wrote, uh, he titled a book, a small book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And to a degree, when we are regenerate, when we are born again, God plants himself within our personality. That, to some degree, will include a certain passion for justice. Now, some of you are already saying, okay, how far do we carry that? Uh, We can talk about that in a little bit. But let's just say that, yes, there is a solid biblical, theological, and anthropological reason for the idea uh, that we should all have a certain passion, a certain drive for justice. The denial that comes with that particular section, we deny that true justice can be culturally defined. It is defined by God, is not defined by any culture in which we shall live. We deny that true justice can be culturally defined or that standards of justice that are merely socially constructed can be imposed with the same authority as those that are derived from Scripture. We further deny that Christians can live justly in the world under any principles other than the biblical standard of righteousness. Relativism, socially constructed standards of truth or morality, and notions of virtue and vice that are constantly in flux cannot result in authentic justice. Now, you see the notes that you have in front of you include Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what does God require of you but to love justice and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, Add to them Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. Justice and only justice you shall pursue. Passion of God for his people. Zechariah 8, 16 through 17, judge with truth. Again, it's based on truth, our correct understanding of specific facts. And judgment for peace in your gates. Judgment, justice, is ultimately designed to resolve conflicts, not to perpetuate them, not to constantly keep it going. Judgment for peace in your gates Let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Uh, Let me just state parenthetically an understanding, an accurate understanding of the nature of justice. The justice due us for being sinners in the face of God is ultimately necessary for an accurate understanding of the gospel. If we pervert in our culture the understanding of what justice is, we will make it inevitably more difficult for us to understand what the gospel truly is all about. George, if I can please jump in, can we get the previous slide? So I think there are a couple of interesting things to say um, about the affirmation, slide number three, if anybody's... That's me, and I'm trying to get it back. Well, one of the things that you saw there was that it is... We we do agree that societies ought to take action to correct uh, cultural, you know, prejudices that have been enshrined in in law and practices. So if we're living in the Jim Crow South, we have a responsibility to end those 
unjust practices that have been enshrined uh, in law. And the, the question today is, wh- where are those practices or those, those, uh, those laws, those institutions, uh, if they exist, right? That's where a lot of the conflict is coming. Uh, we need to correct systemic racism. And everybody would say, yes, I'm no fan of systemic racism or uh, injustice of any kind. The question is, where is it? And I think that's what, what the, these two, the affirmation and the denial go well together because, one, we are, it is incumbent upon us to change those things which are unjust not, it doesn't say the church. Note that it doesn't say we affirm that churches must establish laws, right? Churches don't establish laws, and we'll talk about that later on in the section on the church. It says societies, and of course, Christians make up societies as well, but don't confuse the actions of, an in, of individual Christians with the church Absolutely. as an institution. Number one, so we do need to correct those as members of a society that love truth and love justice and love people. Yet, What's the basis for declaring that something is unjust? It can only be insofar as it's in, in accordance with truth, which is, and, and where is truth? It is in the Scriptures and in the implications of Scriptures. So we live in a society that rejects truth in principle. I mean, think about that. The, the, the average, I mean, the worldview of our current moment says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Right. But give me justice. When, you're, when your children come fighting, and, they, and this is very relevant for me right now, when they come to you fighting, and he took my toy, and this or whatever, you know, when, when, there's, when there is you know, crying and whining, and there's a, a, you know, complaints of, he's been unjust to me, what do you say? What happened? What did you do? You can't just decide, well, she's usually truthful. <laughs> uh, he's usually a bully, so I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, Therefore, I've rendered, I've rendered justice in the matter. No, no, no. Any, any realistic understanding of justice, anything, any notion of justice that means anything, is concerned with what happened, what right. really is the case, what's true. And if you as a, if as a society rejects truth in principle, uh, there's no way that they can understand what justice is. Justice then becomes what critical theory says it is. It's just the disruption of the power dynamics that are in place. Exactly. And it's really interesting that the, the, the text you read about peace, that the goal is, of justice is establishing peace. The goal of critical theory is not to establish peace. The goal of critical theory is no matter what the power dynamics are, no matter what ca- group of people possess the power versus you know, are, are being oppressed, just disrupt it. And when you disrupt it, it'll be different and then disrupt it again. And so it's just, it's just a constant turmoil and tumult, which we would expect from a worldview that rejects truth in principle. Absolutely. And it's precisely because of the uh, shift towards uh, a vantage point of uh, critical race theory, uh, you know, competition between power blocks, uh, that the individual fact-specific basis of justice is being challenged and questioned. God's law... We affirm that God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments and more succinctly summarized in the two great commandments and manifested in Jesus Christ, is the only standard of unchanging righteousness. Violation of that law is what constitutes sin. We deny that any obligation that does not arise from God's commandments can be legitimately imposed on Christians as a prescription for righteous living. We further deny the legitimacy of any charge of sin or call to repentance 
that does not arise from a violation of God's commandments. Now, having looked at that, let me just supplement it by focusing our attention a little bit more on uh, the section where it talks about the two great commandments. Uh, Dr. MacArthur in uh, some of his sermons has recently been directing our attention to that. The two great commandments, a call to love God and a call to love our neighbors as ourselves, are extremely important here. Uh, That love will explain, justify, and motivate the actions called for by this statement. If you love someone and you're in a position to take action to correct injustice, true injustice, you will do so. If you love someone... If you love God and you love those people, you will act in a manner that has proper priorities, proper balance. If we love others within the church, John pointed this out earlier, uh, we will repudiate racism. We will have compassion. We will take action to correct injustice. We will listen. And we will maintain an eternal priority. Again, ultimately, the moral law, and that's a theologically loaded question, the law that develops and comes out of the character and attributes of God, ultimately is the guiding principle behind all legitimate laws that we experience as people. God's law is overriding. No sin can be alleged or charged to God's people, other than grow out of an accurate exegesis of Scripture. There's usually no need to go beyond what the Scripture says uh, if we look honestly at ourselves, because we usually have enough uh, when we honestly understand ourselves to be in an ongoing state of repentance. Sin. We affirm that all people are connected to Adam, both naturally and federally by virtue of our uh, being born from the offspring of Adam. Therefore, because of original sin, everyone is born under the curse of God's law and all break his commandments through sin. The key issue is not so much particular sins as it is that we are born in sin. There is no difference in the condition of sinners due to age, ethnicity, or sex. At one time, a a portion of the uh, uh, Christian church, or supposedly Christian church, tended to uh, believe that women uh, were more susceptible, were more uh, tainted by sin because of the nature of the fall. Uh, But that's not the case. All are depraved in all their faculties, including our processing unit and in our sensory intake units, our central processing unit and our data receiving modes, for those of you who are computer fans. Uh, All are depraved in all their faculties and all stand condemned before God's law. All human relationships, systems, and institutions have been affected by sin. We deny that other than the previously stated connection to Adam, any person is morally culpable for another person's sin. 
Although families, groups, and nations can sin collectively, yes, it can happen, and cultures can be predisposed to particular sins. Titus says all Cretans are liars. Okay? Uh, Subsequent generations share the collective guilt of their ancestors only if they approve and embrace or attempt to justify those sins. Before God, each person must repent and confess his or her own sins in order to receive forgiveness. We further deny that one's ethnicity establishes any necessary connection to any particular sin. Because of the fall, because we're born in sin, we have a need for government. We have a need for law enforcement. And that exists to protect us all from the propensity for evil that each and every one of us, even in regenerate state, will share. Okay? Because of the fall, we also have to guard against corruption or the abuse of power on the part of those who are in government or in enforcement. Okay? Sometimes we have to move carefully, correctly, and with balance in two directions at the same time. Okay? The next thing to uh, make sure we understand uh, before we move on to the next topic, there is a reality. There is a certain reality to a collective guilt for sin. Okay? We understood that in the late, the mid to late 1940s when one particular country was found to have systematically taken the lives of millions of people. And we'd say, didn't you guys know about this? How could you not have been aware? How could you not have taken some action? And in fact, action had been taken. Uh, in large part... Uh, It had been unsuccessful, but pitched battles had been fought. Uh, But yet there is a sense in which we understand a certain uh, mark on that particular country for a period of time for collective sin. Now, to what extent do we bear that if we are from that country? The passage makes clear we are not necessarily subject to it. We can become so if we do not repudiate. We can become so if we attempt to embrace uh, and continue it. We as believers often tend to think that guilt only is on an individual basis. We would do well to realize uh, that there can be a certain sense of collective responsibility. But it has to be properly balanced and properly processed. The gospel. So we wouldn't... We wouldn't Go right ahead. Yeah, so we wouldn't say that somebody who is a German bears guilt for the sins of, you know, the Third Reich. Merely because they were being, they're German. Right. Uh, you know, and, and therefore, and we would say that they were guilty of those things if they said, oh, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, or, oh, I sympathize with some of the things that Hitler was trying to do, and, you know, you know if they don't, if they're sitting there saying, I'll, I'll embrace a part of that, I'll attempt to justify a part of that, uh, then they bear that guilt. Um, you know, groups are made up of individuals. 
You know, that, that, I always find it funny when, when, you know, even in the discussion of the doctrine of election where it says, well, God didn't choose individual sinners, he just cho- chose nations or just chose groups. Well, well that's, that's more people, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. if, he, if, if you're upset that he, he would choose an individual, uh, why, why are you not upset that he would choose, uh, choose a whole nation of individuals? Um, in the same way, right, in, you know, groups are made up of individuals, and we, we, it would be unjust, it would be wrong for us to impute uh, with the guilt of of uh, you know the the racist genocidal uh, sins of Nazi Germany to any to to somebody who to a German child who was born eight years ago you know um, simply because that's their that their ethnic nationality in the same way um, we cannot argue that uh, all Southerners or all white people are complicit in the sins of America's uh, you know enslavement of blacks and and then perpetration of the injustices of Jim Crow simply by virtue of their being American or being right. white or being Southern. It, people, there are people who exist who attempt to justify and attempt to downplay and share in the, in the sort of the principles of those things, and they bear that guilt. But uh, if we say that they bear the guilt simply because of something with respect to their flesh, we're looking at, we're looking at things as they are outwardly and not as they are truly, and we need to repent of that. Very good. That's totally correct. The Gospel. This is section number six of the statement. We affirm, and uh, hopefully it's not the case, but in a group this size, it may be that uh, some have never heard the Gospel succinctly stated. So uh, if that would be you, uh, we may want to talk later. We affirm that the Gospel is the divinely revealed message concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially his virgin birth, birth, righteous life, substitutionary sacrifice, atoning death, and bodily resurrection, revealing who he is and what he has done with the promise that he will save anyone and everyone who turns from sin by trusting him as Lord. We deny that anything else whether works to be performed or opinions to be held can be added to the gospel without perverting it into another gospel. This also means that implications and applications of the gospel, such as the obligation to live justly in the world, though legitimate and important in their own right, are not definitional components of the gospel. This is extremely important in our dealing with challenges of racism or in our dealing with challenges of uh, justice and justness. We do not, we cannot, uh, we do not dare to create a new type or new form of legalism. And that is precisely the danger that has to be guarded against. There has to be a clear distinction between the gospel, specifically and in and of itself, and those outgrowths of the gospel demonstrating itself in the lives of people. Dr. MacArthur uh, preached uh, through Ezekiel 18 a couple of years ago when all of this was going on. And that passage really illustrates and demonstrates Uh, The point precisely, 
it would be difficult to find an Old Testament passage that does not speak more clearly to the topic. Uh, Regenerate status comes from God. It follows repentance. It follows trust in Christ as Lord and as Savior. It will lead to a change in life. And a portion of that change in life may well, and the extent will probably differ within different people, uh, but it will lead to a certain justness in your conduct and in your relationships with others. It will lead to a certain love for others that will uh, speak to the ending of wrong treatment of them. Okay? But that is not a definitional component or part of the gospel. Precise thinking is extremely important on this particular area. Uh, And uh, tragically, at times, we've seen some highly respected men whom we love uh, not keep that precise barrier in place in their own minds. So we want to make sure that we understand that. Uh, It is also a statement of our priority as a church. Uh, We'll see that a little bit more as we go through this. Moving on, salvation, the topic of salvation. And by the way, if you look closely, uh, all five solas of the Reformation are present in this particular document. Sola gratia, sola Christo, sola fide, sola scriptura, and implicitly, soli deo gloria, all for the glory of God. Salvation, we affirm that salvation is granted by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Three of the solas, right there. Every believer is united to Christ. United to Christ. We sometimes lose sight of the fact. Justified before God and adopted into his family. Thus, in God's eyes, there is no difference in spiritual value or worth among those who are in Christ. Further, all who are united to Christ are also united to one another. United to one another, regardless of age, ethnicity, or sex. I am united to my Arab brothers who trust and believe in Christ. As a uh, person of Scottish descent, I also am united uh, to those who are English and who are truly in Christ. (laughs) Now, if you know your history, you'll understand that that's really saying something. Okay? Um, All believers are being conformed to the image of Christ. By God's regenerating and sanctifying grace, all believers will be brought to a final, glorified, sinless state of perfection in the day of Jesus Christ. We cannot, and it's unrealistic. I grew up in a denomination that would teach otherwise, but we cannot expect of ourselves or any other believer full perfection in this life. We have to have a certain level of uh, grace uh, in our treatment with and in our interaction with other people. We deny that salvation can be received in any other way. We also deny that salvation renders any Christian free from all remaining sin or immune from even grievous sin in this life. You all have a very difficult time understanding uh, the history of the church in America uh, if you do not go at it with this principle in mind. 
We further deny that ethnicity excludes anyone from understanding the gospel, and there have been times when people have taught that or lived that way, nor does anyone's ethnic or cultural heritage mitigate or remove the duty to repent and believe. The ground is equal, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. Right? We understand that. To I just adult, think it's, it's, so, it's so great and important to, to read that, that statement of union to Christ and therefore union to one another. You know, in, in any discussion, my people are not the people who look like me. My people are the people of Jesus Christ. Amen. They're my family. Matthew 12, right? Jesus, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you. Who, who are my mother and my brothers? Here they are, the ones that do, my, do the will of God. They're, they're my mother and sister and brother. Matthew twelve forty six to 50. So if we think, if we are tempted at all to think, to look at someone who has the same color of skin, the same facial features as us, similar last name or whatever, and say, oh, but those are my people. No. Do not regard anyone according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians five sixteen. Right. Your people are the ones who are united to Christ. I am more closely related to you know, followers of Jesus in China, in the Middle East, in, in Russia, wherever else than I am to uh, a, you know, someone who looks just like me, has a, you know, is an Italian-American you know, from New Jersey who's an unbeliever, right? right? That, that's a key principle in this discussion, uh, that our people are, are Christ's people, not the people of my ethnicity. If you have had the opportunity at any time to be uh, um, in a foreign country on a short-term mission, interacting with believers... Uh, there's a sense in which you will have picked up on that. Uh, you will have sensed that unity that you have with other believers you've never met before. Your cultural background is totally different. And yet you are one in Christ. And if you've done this, you will understand. And if you haven't, uh, let me encourage as soon as short-term missions become available to uh, get involved with them. The church... We affirm that the primary role of the church, emphasize the word primary, the primary role of the church is to worship God through the preaching of his word, teaching sound doctrine, observing baptism and the Lord's Supper, refuting those who contradict, equipping the saints and evangelizing the lost. We affirm that when the primacy of the gospel is maintained, that this often has a positive effect on the culture in which various societal ills are mollified. We affirm that under the lordship of Christ, we are to obey the governing authorities established by God and pray for civil leaders. We deny that political or social activism should be viewed as integral components of the gospel or primary to the mission of the church. The believers can and should use all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on the laws of a society. We deny that these activities are either evidence of saving faith or constitute a central part of the church's mission given to her by Jesus Christ, her head. We deny that laws or regulations possess any inherent power 
to change sinful hearts. Uh, One of the best examples, illustrations of this, and I'll pick up on him again near the end, William Wilberforce. Wilberforce is brought to Christ uh, during the time of the English Great Awakening. Uh, He is mentored by John Newton. No greater example of the uh, gospel of Christ exists probably than John Newton. Newton mentors William Wilberforce. Wilberforce is actually considering leaving the, the area of government and moving into the realm of the ministry, and uh, Newton says, no, God has put you in that position. Conduct yourself in a manner so that you are accountable to God when you act in the House of Parliament. Wilberforce is part of a group known as the Clapham, C-L-A-P-H-A-M Society. You can look them up. Uh, they took action to correct a number of uh, social ills that existed in England at that time. England may very well have had a Marxist revolution, uh, but for the actions of the Clapham Society. Uh, Most notably, however, Wilberforce was the individual who, uh, with the mentoring and the guidance, and to some degree with the input of the former slave trader, John Newton, uh, Newton led the act, uh, Wilberforce led the action in the British Parliament that culminated in the abolition of the British slave trade. Okay? It grew out of the proclamation of the gospel. Mike, you have something to add to that? Uh, no, you, 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 if you, I'll comment on, the, on this slide at the end of your talk. All right, okay. Heresy. Oh, no, okay, sorry. No, if you, if you, if you were done with church... What? If you're done with church, yeah. Deal with it. No, just just for what this is really battling is it's trying to under it's trying to recognize that the social gospel um, very, is is an extremely powerful force and always a temptation uh, for very good reasons in the minds and hearts of Christian people. We long to see humans flourish. We long to see God's blessing come to the nations. We we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we think sometimes at different points of church history that we have a better way of doing it than God does. Mm -hmm. And the way that we'll do it is we'll staple fruit to a tree rather than plant the tree, water it, and cultivate it according to the means of of cultivation that God has given it. And so what, what we're trying to deny here is, let me just give you four quick principles. These won't be long at all. But no, no. Do we believe that? No, no, no. Quick, real quick. <laughs> the king, the, we do not bring the kingdom of God. Christ brings the kingdom of God. And in the social, in the people who embrace the social gospel, they're almost uniformly post-millennialists that believe that we are to usher in a state of affairs that the Scripture describes as the millennial kingdom, and then Christ will return when he sees the church having made a suitable habitation for his reign. So if that's what we're going to do, We've got to transform society to make it look like what Scripture says is the kingdom. That gets us off our course. The kingdom is going to be brought by Christ, not the church. Number two, Israel is not the church. A lot of times people Mm -hmm. will take Old Testament passages about the Israelite theocracy and apply them to the church and say, well, seek the welfare of the city that you're in, Jeremiah 29.7. When people say that, I always say, yeah, do that the next time you're in exile in Babylon. Right? There's, there's a context in which Israel is told to seek the welfare of the city in which they are captors that doesn't map one-to-one onto the church, which is not a political entity, which is not a geographical entity, which is not a social entity, but which is a spiritual entity. 
the, a third thing is to keep in mind the distinction between the church and Christians. And I mentioned this before, mm-hmm. that individual believers are to live in society as disciples of Jesus in every way that, that it, you, you would follow Christ faithfully. But that doesn't mean the church as a collective institution has to, needs to take on as its, uh, in its agenda me- items in, in an elder meeting how we're going to eliminate uh, hunger and poverty and fatherlessness from Los Angeles County, right? We're, we're going to preach the gospel and train up disciples who will go back into their families and communities and live faithfully, but, but the church does not have a responsibility to directly affect uh, social transformation like that. And I forgot the fourth one, which just as well. Well, the fact that, okay, all right. Uh, I knew this was a good idea to tag team with Mike. Uh, the church, and our church, we have men and women who serve within the local county prosecutor's office. We have men, and probably some women that I don't know about, who are serving in law enforcement. We have men who have served uh, in positions of judicial authority. That is not the church, and yet it is a part of the church by virtue of the fact that they are believers and they are here. That shows the balance that we're talking about. Moving on, heresy. We affirm that heresy is a denial or departure from a doctrine essential to the Christian faith. We further affirm that heresy often involves the replacement of key essential truths with variant concepts or the elevation of non-essentials. This is what we've got to guard against, to the status of essentials. To embrace heresy is to depart from the faith once delivered to the saints, Jude chapter one, uh, Jude 1, and to be on a path towards spiritual destruction. We affirm that the accusation of heresy should be reserved for those departures from Christian truth that destroy the weight-bearing doctrines of the redemptive core of Scripture. We affirm that accusations of heresy should be accompanied with clear evidence of such destructive beliefs. We deny that the charge of heresy can be legitimately brought against every failure to achieve perfect conformity to all that is implied in sincere faith in the gospel. In our lifestyle, in our lifetime, we're all going to be to some degree imperfect. We have to remember that. We don't create heresy by elevating something That should not be considered a crucial part of the gospel to that level. And we do not charge heresy inappropriately and without proper uh, evidence. Mike, you know, talk to us about sexuality and marriage and about complementarianism. Sure, and, and the, I think the heart behind the heresy statements and the salvation and, and uh, gospel statements, you might read those and go, well, of course I believe that. I think the heart behind that is just to say, if... If a, because because we agree that the salva- that God, the salvation salvation and the gospel issues in a believer's you know desiring and working for justice, just because uh, somebody might not get it, or because somebody might be working for justice in a way that you disagree with or don't think is 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 sufficient or on an issue that is not as important as another issue, that you can say, oh well, you don't understand the gospel, you're not a Christian, and that that's that's happening, you know. Um, conversations take take place online, and then, you know, you, you see the, the way that it goes, and then somebody says, well, I understand what the problem is. You just don't understand what the gospel is. Well, no, no, no. I understand what the gospel is, but we're, we're disagreeing over the implications of, of that, and we can be 
genuine believers and have disagreements about that. Let's have a discussion. All right. But sexuality and marriage, we affirm that God created mankind male and female and that this divinely determined distinction is good, proper, and to be celebrated. Maleness and femaleness are biologically determined at conception and are not subject to change. So that's a repudiation of the transgender nonsense. Uh, The curse of sin results in sinful, disordered affections that manifest in some people as same-sex attraction. Uh, so there's, I, I did a seminar on this last week uh, on whether attraction to members of the same sex or attraction to sin in general is itself sinful, right? Is it, is it sin when we just feel drawn to it, or is it sin only when we actually act on it? And my seminar last week made the argument that it is sin to desire what is sinful. A desire for an illicit end is an illicit desire. Uh, longing for something for which there is no lawful expression according to Scripture is the definition of covetousness. Homosexual desire fits into that. There can be no lawful expression for uh, romantic or emotional or sexual attractions, desires, for members of the same sex. Therefore, the statement says, salvation grants sanctifying power to renounce such dishonorable affections as sinful and to mortify them by the Spirit. Feelings of same-sex desires or any other you know, sinful desires are to be mortified uh, as, and, and fought as sinful. They're not to be thought of as neutral, only to be cut off at the fruit level. They need to be mortified at the root level. We further affirm that God's design for marriage is that one woman and one man live in a one-flesh, covenantal, sexual relationship until separated by death. Those who lack the desire or opportunity for marriage are called to serve God in singleness and chastity. This is as noble a calling as marriage. We deny that human sexuality is a socially constructed concept. We also deny that one's sex can be fluid, and you could put gender. We deny that one's gender can be fluid because sex and gender are the same thing, despite uh, the protestations of our culture to the contrary. We reject gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category. This uh, dealing with the idea of well, since I'm a Christian who finds myself tempted uh, continually by attraction to members of the same sex, therefore uh, I am a gay Christian. Well, we don't say that about any other sin pattern. We don't say I'm a Christian who finds myself tempted to, to physical violence, right? I'm a striker. I'm a pugnacious person, and therefore I'm a violence-attracted Christian. Uh, we, we don't say, you know, that I'm, I, you know, that I really struggle with the desire for drunkenness and, and, and drug-induced highs, so therefore I'm, I'm an a, a drunkenness-attracted Christian. No, we don't, we don't, or I'm, I'm a drunkard Christian, or I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a murdering Christian, I'm a rapist Christian. We don't define ourselves by the struggles uh, of our sin. We define ourselves by union to Christ. And so we can say, I'm a Christian who is daily engaged in the battle of mortification of, of desire, sexual desires for the same sex. We can say that. I'm daily engaged in the, in the mortification of the desires to harm others and be angry and be impatient but we don't say I'm an, I'm an impatient Christian. That's a contradiction in terms, so also with homosexuality. We further deny that any kind of partnership or union can be called marriage other than the one man and one woman in lifelong covenant together. So there is no such thing as homosexual marriage or gay marriage. It's like saying square circles or dry water. We further deny that people should be identified as sexual minorities, which is a very popular phrase these days, which serves as a cultural classification rather than one that honors the image-bearing character of human sexuality as created by God. If you can say, well, I'm a sexual minority, you can leverage all of the, the 
emotional and moral clout of laboring to help minority ethnicities, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, we, we agree is a good thing. If you say, well, I'm, I'm just a sexual minority, you're, you're, you're describing sin with categories of things that are not sin. It's not sin to be a minority. It is sin to be homosexual. And this really is uh, an area in which our culture is trying at breakneck speed to distort the thinking of Bible-believing Christians. And then complementarianism, you you all should be familiar with, and you can can read this on your own, we we need to wrap up soon, but um, the basic thought here is that God has created men and women with equal dignity, value, and in, in the image of God, and yet he's given us distinct roles, both in the home and the church, and uh, we ought to honor those roles as are outlined in Scripture. Okay, thank you, Mike. Race, ethnicity. We have a, showing about 10 minutes until 10. I'm going to zip through. I'm going to move through these because we want to consider certain calls to action and certain uh, balances that we have to consider. We affirm that God made all people from one man. Acts 17, the text actually says from one. And different versions of the Bible will say one blood or one man. Though people often can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities, they are ontological equals before God. They, in existence, are equal before God in both creation and redemption. Quote, race, unquote, is not a biblical category, but rather a social construct that has often been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. Tremendous amount behind that statement. All that is good, honest, just, and beautiful in various ethnic backgrounds and experiences can be celebrated as the fruit of God's grace. I thrive on hearing some of the work that God has done in the culture of some of my brothers from Africa. And I deplore some of the stuff that has been done in the culture of my ancestry and ethnicity. All sinful actions and their results, including evils perpetrated between and upon ethnic groups by others, are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. We deny that Christians should should segregate themselves into racial groups or regard racial identity above or even equal to their identity in Christ. We deny that any divisions between people groups from an unstated attitude of superiority to an overt spirit of resentment have any legitimate place in the fellowship of the redeemed. We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings, again, we're fact-oriented, feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. Culture. We affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are inherently better than those of other cultures. Why? Because of the biblical truths that inform those worldviews that have produced those distinct assumptions. Uh, 
Those elements of a given culture that reflect divine revelation should be celebrated and promoted regardless of where they come from. But the various cultures out of which we have been called all have features that are worldly and sinful. And therefore those sinful features should be repudiated for the honor of Christ. We affirm that whatever evil influences to which we have been subjected via our culture can be and must be overcome through conversion and the training of both mind and heart through biblical truth. We deny that individuals and subgroups in any culture are unable by God's grace to rise above whatever moral defects or spiritual deficiencies (coughs) have been engendered or encouraged by their respective cultures. Finally, racism. Can I just get two words on that? Please. So... Uh, it's, a little, it's a little bit of a yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit of a controversial statement to say we we we, uh, we affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are inherently better than other cultures. But we all believe that we all recognize that intuitively. We would say that a culture that practices cannibalism and and polyamory is a culture that is is inherently worse than a culture that pract- does not practice cannibalism and practices monogamy. Right, so. We get that there are certain cult practices and cultures that are going to be enshrined and, and entrenched that are more or less in accord with biblical truth. And so bring that from cannibalism and polyamory down to the aspects of each one of our cultures that uh, contradict or are in line with the Scriptures. Y- your culture is not sacrosanct. You, you don't get to say, well, that's... You're, you're telling me I shouldn't do that, but that's just part of my culture. That's just the way that my people are. You know, we're, we're very impatient and loud, and, and, and we, we... talk we, with uh, our hands. Yeah, I'm talking about <laughs> Italians right here, right? I mean, this, you know, like try, having, having a conversation around my dinner table at a holiday time is very different than at my wife's uh, table, at my family's table at, at holiday time, you know? There's, you, you, they come over, and they look at our family, and they go, are these people angry with each other? You know? It's, that's just how we are, right? But if somebody said, hey, you know, you really spoke to your dad in a way that was unbecoming of, of a submissive son, I don't get to say, that's just how Italians talk to their dads. No. You know, you, right. you, get, you have to say, that's not, it's, it's not okay. So any aspect of your culture that's not in accord with the Scripture needs to be brought into subjection to it. And if, and if, and if you find yourself saying or thinking about others, saying, well, but you're just telling them not to express themselves. Sure, that's exactly what I'm telling them. Stop expressing yourself. Your ex- self-expression is not sacrosanct. The Scripture is, and it has to be subjected to the Scriptures. How you express yourself should be in conformity with Scripture. Amen. Absolutely. Um, a book that may help you see the problem that this presents for missions uh, is titled The Peace Child. Uh, and that was, how do you proclaim the gospel within a culture that uh, idolizes duplicity? Judas was a hero. Okay? And they found a way to communicate that to the culture uh, understanding that Christ himself was the peace child. Okay? So it's a challenge. Racism. We affirm that racism is a sin. Racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice which must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God in all people. Categorically. 
No ifs, ands, or buts here. Such racial sin can be can subtly or overtly manifest itself as racial animosity or racial pride, racial vainglory. Such sinful prejudice or partiality falls short of God's revealed will and violates the royal law of love. We affirm that virtually all cultures, including our own, at times contain laws and systems that foster racist attitudes and policies. We deny that treating people with sinful partiality or prejudice is consistent with biblical Christianity. We deny that only those in positions of power are capable of racism or racism or that individuals of any particular ethnic groups are incapable of racism. We deny that systemic racism is in any way compatible with the core principles of historic evangelical convictions. I'm going to let you continue reading that. You have it in front of you. We emphatically deny that lectures on social issues are as vital to the life and health of the church as the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of Scripture. Now, there are specific calls to action. There are four of them that you can find. Uh, When you go through the document and you look for terms must or should be, uh, it's a call to action, no question about it. Uh, And we dare not ignore them. From the section on justice, we affirm that since he is holy, righteous, and just, God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. This includes showing appropriate respect to every person and giving to each one what he or she is due. We affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. Call to action number one. There should be a passion uh, for justice and justness in all believers. Not every individual is going to be a William Wilberforce. Uh, God will equip and gift some individuals. First Corinthians tells us there were not many among you who are wise in this world's uh, eyes or in the uh, manners of this particular world. God will equip some to have more of a role in that area than he will others. Call to action number two. Believers can and should. And there's something about me that uh, I react negatively to the term utilize when use is just as uh, effective. Believers can and should use all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on the laws of a society. Again, we should try when we have the opportunity uh, to change, to get rid of inappropriate and unjust laws. No question about it. Okay, how far do we take that? Call to action number three. All sinful actions and their results, including evils perpetrated between and upon ethnic groups by others, are to be confessed, acknowledged as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. We could talk about this to great extent, but the means by which the ancestors of a major part of our culture, 
who have been victimized, I'm talking about African Americans, were brought here in violation of a passage in the Old Testament that states enslaving or kidnapping is a capital offense. And Paul acknowledges at the beginning of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the horror of that practice. That practice, to some degree, is going to reemerge. And it is reemerging in our culture. It is just as horrible now as it was then in the practice of human trafficking. Not necessarily ethnic-based, but it is... And Revelation seems to indicate that that is going to increase uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation. We're seeing something of that take place even now. They are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. Fourth, we affirm that racism is a sin rooted in pride and malice, which must be condemned and renounced by all who would honor the image of God in all people. Now, there is an eternal priority, however. From section 8, the church We affirm that the primary role of the church is to worship God through the preaching of his word, teaching sound doctrine. You have it in front of you. The one thing we want to avoid is a practical dichotomy that appeared in the church at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, You had, quote-unquote, liberals who were really nothing more than apostates attempting to justify their existence and all too often their financial support by the church. Uh, attempting to justify themselves within the church by saying we focus on social justice. You had individuals, and some of them growing from a culture that had tolerated and was still in the practice at some point of tolerating systemic racism, uh, saying we teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that man needs to repent and embrace Jesus as as atoning Savior and Lord, Uh, And we will teach and proclaim that, and we're not going to get into, quote-unquote, the social gospel. And the dichotomy, it was either this or that. And in fact, the scripture would indicate, and this document really points that out, it should be both, but in proper balance and priority. Okay? We make sure that we understand that. Now, we deny... Again, we want to deny that anything else, whether works to be performed or opinions to be held, can be added to the gospel without perverting it. We want to avoid, uh, in some ways, a recreation of what the Catholic Church did in the early medieval era, that of creating a different gospel than what the Scripture, provo- the scripture proclaims. Now, the danger to avoid... Um, One of my favorite books is Martin Lloyd-Jones' Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. He describes an event that occurred uh, in the life of William Wilberforce. He was speaking at a group, uh, and after he had talked, uh, a woman came up to him. He, of course, had talked about uh, the ministry that, or the mission he had to introduce legislation that outlawed the British slave trade. And the woman came up to him And uh, Lloyd-Jones indicates that we're not sure whether or what was driving her, whether she just wasn't too terribly intelligent or whether she was very theologically astute. But she asked a question to Wilberforce that uh, hit him right between the eyes. And she said, Mr. Wilberforce, what about the soul? What about the soul? 
And it is possible if we become out of balance in our proclamation and our effort to change laws and our effort to have impact in our culture, we can ignore the human soul. We can ignore the soul of those who are self-deceived. There's an individual, if you look through a Chinese history, by the name of Y.T. Wu. Uh, Wu tried to justify himself within the church in uh, mainland China after Mao took over. He led a corruption of the church, very likely was self-deceived. The souls of the distracted believer. Yeah, you're saved. You're saved, all right. But the consequence that you need to look out for is that of a leanness of soul. You focus so much on conduct here within this world that you neglect the enriching of your mind with the scripture, uh, you neglect growth in Christ and the development of discernment. Finally, uh, the souls of the victims of injustice. Mike, you had a great comment. You want to uh, try to uh, resurrect that? We care about mercy. We care about no suffering. Yeah, you know, the idea. So we care, we as, as Christians care about all suffering. We do. We are not indifferent to the suffering of any one of the image bearers of God. Uh, if so, we could properly be accused of being crass. So we, we don't want there to be um, injustice in you know, police practices or the enforcement of laws or, or uh, certainly e- ethnic-based partiality. We don't want any of those things. But we care most about eternal suffering. We care about all suffering but especially eternal suffering. Because if we could eliminate all ills and all injustice for these 80 years that people have on this planet, and yet fail to eliminate the eternal suffering that they'll experience uh, apart from Christ or under the, under the wrath of God forever in hell, we've, we've gained somewhat of a hollow victory. We, we care uh, about, I mean, it's not nothing, you know, to make it so that there are certain people group who are not enslaved. It's not nothing to, to remove the kind of partiality that would cause different people with different skin color to use different bathrooms or water fountains or, or anything else. Uh, that's good, and it's, it's important, and we would always want to say that as significant. But if we do that to the exclusion of what can save their souls from eternal suffering— we, we've missed the, the proper priority. I mean, just think about it. If, if I could relieve suffering for 25 years or 25,000 years, which one should I be more devoted to? The, the one that the, I want to reduce the longer right. suffering because that's greater suffering, right? And it, hell is not only longer suffering, suffering greater in quantity, it's also uh, worse suffering, suffering greater in quality. And so uh, that needs to be the priority that pushes us. We care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. The priority. The key word is priority. Uh, And if you consider this, if you knew of someone who had been uh, abducted into human trafficking, you would, of course, do anything you could to try to rescue that person from that. Right? But if you rescue that woman or that man, and you do not proclaim the truth of the gospel to them, have you really loved him or her as the scripture would call you to do? Okay, I think we all can understand that as we work through that. Now, we have no agenda here 
other than to equip, other than to uh, allow our people to be better able to function as salt and light within the day and time that God has uh, allowed us to live. The only passage that I could think in terms of uh, ending this, and it's at the end of Paul's great discussion of the truth of the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, fully anchored into truth, immovable, not blown about by the winds of uh, uh, deception within a culture, always abounding in the work of the Lord, superabounding, present tense, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, let's have a closing word of prayer. It's 10 after 10, and you've got 20 minutes before uh, Dr. MacArthur will be preaching. Father in heaven, thank you for the scripture. Thank you that you have not left us in the state of shapeless ruin that the fall had reduced our grasp of you to become. Father, I pray for each person here. I pray that your hand of blessing, direction, and guidance would rest upon them. Father, may we be salt and light in the culture in which we live. May we act wisely. May we think clearly. May our perspective be directed totally by you and by your word. Even now, we thank you for this group. We thank you for the time we've spent today. We love you and trust you. Amen.